Let me pray for us and then we'll get started. Okay, let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you again for your mercy, your grace. Thank you for uh, your word. Thank you that we can, uh, just like Calvin, that old story of him coming back to Geneva, picking back up on the next verse that he left off years ago. And we just thank you that um, we can uh, come to your word and profit from your word at any moment, any time that we are ready to give our hearts to it. So we thank you, Lord, for uh, this time. We ask that you'd please bless this time. Give us understanding. Give us growth and clarity in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Let me just make sure I have... I don't think I can do purple. It's just not in me. I don't think Royalty. I can do it. Yeah, I just... <laughs> that's not all that great. That's probably why you did purple. Um, okay, I'll humble myself. Under God's <laughs> mighty hand. <laughs> um, so, just to recap, okay, biblical theology. We've been... Uh, discussing um, the definition of what is biblical theology. And I broke it up um, in four parts based on Gerhardus Voss's definition of biblical theology. And let me read it for us one more time because I don't know how often I will read it past this this, uh, lesson today. But this is what uh, Voss describes biblical theology as. Biblical theology, rightly defined, is nothing else than the exhibition of the organic progress of supernatural revelation in its historic continuity and multiformity. And so we talked a little bit about each part of that because you read a, you read a, uh, you know, you read a a sentence like that and you just, okay, okay, continuity, organic, progress, I mean, it's all over the place. It's really not. It's actually perfectly coherent. It's just that we have to really kind of meditate on it. This kind of reminds me when I first started reading Jonathan Edwards, I had to read a paragraph probably five times over again before I could even understand it. And then when I did understand it, I thought to myself, boy, how profound is that? Uh, same thing with Voss. I mean, once you understand what he's getting at, just the grasp of what he's saying here, it is really profound. So we talked a little bit about the display of, of uh, biblical theology when he says the exhibition of biblical theology. Um, This is why that is important. That is important simply because when we're talking about the display of biblical theology, we're really talking about how God has chosen to reveal himself. Uh, Over and over, biblical theologians point out, God did not hand us a a book on dogmatics. In other words, he didn't just hand us a systematic theology, right? There's a sense in which we could call the Bible a systematic theology, right? And we understand what we mean by that. What we mean by that is that the Bible is full of theology. Uh, but he didn't give us a book that says, okay, open to page one, here's point one, sub point two. That's not how it works. What he gave us instead is, 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 is the display of his self-revelation contained in history. The Bible, above everything, is a historical book. And so it unfolds in that way. And that's the way God has chosen to reveal himself. Now, we talk about the difference between systematic theology, biblical theology. When we're talking about systematic theology, remember what we're saying. We're picking a doctrine. We're taking the whole canon of Scripture, pulling relevant texts out, and then uh, uh, supporting our understanding of that doctrine, right? But biblical theology is much more concerned with uh, coming to the scripture and making our deductions on the basis of how the text is written itself. 
In other words, how did God choose to reveal himself in the word of God? Um, and that's really what he, what he means by the organic progress of supernatural revelation. The other thing that we pointed out in terms of the organic progress of supernatural revelation, which is just, just to make it very simple, what he means by that is just the way the Bible progresses organically, right? Um, what he means by that organically at least that's an important it's not just a trendy word it's actually a word that has great significance and what the significance is is that the bible is one in one collective collective unit of thought it is uh in other words we are people of the whole book uh not just of you know a quarter of the book we are people of the entire book um all of the bible is uh connected together organically related to one another um uh, even today, in my amazing how much when you're preaching and then you're doing Sunday school, how much of the content of either Sunday school relates to your preaching or your preaching relates to Sunday school. Maybe it's because of the hermeneutical principle of the analogy of the faith. Everybody knows what that is? What is that, Landon? Uh, I mean, we have different principles of hermeneutics. Yeah, and what's the analogy of the faith? Do you remember? Uh, yeah, Specifically, no. Robert? Scripture interpreting scripture. Scripture interpreting scripture. That's not fair. I, 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 I don't mean to do that to you. you know what I, mean? I know. I know what it means to be caught in the, you know. Um, <laughs> I know. The analogia fide, right? The reformers would call it. Yeah, that's right. Scripture proves scripture. And the only reason why we can do that, scripture proves scripture, is because all of scripture goes together. All of scripture exhibits an organic character. That's why we can do that. Uh, we also talked a little bit about you know, I tell you what, to me, this is all glorious. I set out to do lesson one, lesson two, lesson three. I got on lesson two, right? And now I'm 26 pages in <laughs> on my notes. So, you know, that's just how carried away I got. But um, the other thing is, um, number three, the historical unity of biblical theology. Uh, the historical unity of biblical theology. Again, uh, he's just showing... Uh, the, the unity or the harmony of Scripture. And the way that Voss and other theologians say uh, or speak of this is that what they say is that what's going on early on in the Bible, early on in the history of the Bible, is that God is, in a sense, giving us revelatory seeds. That within the seed, we may be looking at a text that is in the seed form. In other words, it's in the most primitive stages but in those seeds are contained, even though it's imperceptible to us, you know, initially, is contained the full flower of, of, of let's say, the gospel. Uh, Gerhardus Voss says that the gospel of paradise, what's he referring to there? Genesis 3. Genesis 3. The gospel of ter- paradise, he would say, is the gospel of Paul. And I thought, wow, that's just so amazing. And his development on that, I don't know if I can find. Here it is. I mean, here it is right here. Let me, let me, let me, let me spend a little time reiterating this. Listen to this so that you know what it means by organic and historical unity and continuity. Listen to what Gerhardus Voss says. He says, the gospel of paradise is such a germ, or like a seed, right, in which the gospel of Paul is potentially present. In other words, the full-fledged gospel of Paul is not yet fully revealed. He says, and the gospel of Abraham, Moses, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah are all expansions of this original message of salvation. 
He says, each pointing forward to the next stage of growth and bringing the gospel idea one step near to the full realization. He says, in the gospel of paradise, we are already, we already discern the essential features of a covenant relationship. So already in Genesis, we already understand in seed form a covenant relationship with God and man. And he says, though the formal notion of a covenant does not yet attach to it. And what he means by formal notion of a covenant is that in Genesis chapter three, you don't have the use of the word berit. So you don't have the actual word covenant used. Uh, and you don't have a more formal covenant structure like you find, for example, in the Mosaic Covenant. But the seed form is there. And he says, from this time onward, the expansive character of the covenant idea shows itself. The covenant of Abraham contains the promise of the Saniatic Covenant. Because remember, within the covenant of Abraham, God attached to the covenant of Abraham the predictive prophecy that led to the captivity of the people of Israel in Egypt. It's already tethered to the covenant of Abraham. And then he says, then he says, uh, the latter again, the Sinaitic covenant, the latter again, from its very nature, gives rise to prophecy. This is important, folks. And prophecy, listen to this, prophecy guards, or you can even say, Prophecy protects the covenant of Sinai from assuming a fixed, unalterable form. The prophetic word being a creative word under the influence of which the spiritual, universal germs of the covenant are quickened and a new, higher order of things is organically developed from the Mosaic theocracy. What's he saying there? What he's saying there is this. That when God gave Moses the, Mo- the Mosaic Covenant, he loaded it with predictive prophecy that enabled, uh, that enabled the, the, the Mosaic Covenant to be a preparatory covenant for something else. In other words, so that the people of God would not be bound to a theocratic vision of God's relationship with man. This is something amazing to understand. That the theocracy of Israel came in as a, listen listen now, this this is very important for theology here, came in as a one-time unrepeatable event. It is a one-time unrepeatable event. And with that, the implications of that are massive. What that means is that Christians today cannot repeat a theocracy, because it had its redemptive purpose in God's panoply of redemption. And it was so so loaded with prophecy that it already prepared us for a greater covenant administration, namely the new covenant. So, uh, question? I'm just trying to follow you. Um, yes. So, okay, you, you, kind of, you kind of answered it as you kept on talking mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah, that to me is very helpful. Like when you get into the theonomy debate, the reason theonomy is wrong, I believe, is because of the the purpose and the function of theocracy in the plan of God. The plan of God is not to set up a theocracy that becomes a paradigm for a future theocracy in this age. Absolutely not. It's actually preparatory, not of a future. Uh, a future theocracy 
but it's actually indicative of the age to come and the theocratic system that's going to exist in heaven. So that's that's where I'm at with that, yeah. So, um, again, just trying to follow with regard yeah. to uh, the, the theocracy of Israel yeah. under the Sinaitic covenant. Mm-hmm. Um, in essence, that's the seed of the new covenant, the foundation being, growing into what we now see as the new covenant in, some, in a... I think what Voss is really trying to point out is that the, 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 the covenant at Sinai, because of its prophetic character, yeah, it's prophetic. It, it, it safeguards two things. Number one, it doesn't, it doesn't remain permanent. So the mosaic economy, you know, um, I mean, think about it. Think about what Jesus does. He, he, he rips to shred the old order, right? The temple itself will be destroyed. The, the sacrifices will cease. Uh, matter of fact, I mean, Jesus told the Jews, you know, the kingdom is taken away from you. You know what I mean? I mean, there's such an, a, a covenantal upheaval that happens. Why can that happen without contradicting the covenant bond that God made with Israel in Sinai? Because the covenant bond that God made with Sinai was already preloaded prophetically for a future administration. So that's why he says he guards the covenant of Sinai from assuming a fixed, unalterable form. He says the prophetic word being a creative word under the influence of which the spiritual universal germs of the covenant are quickened and a new higher order of things is organically developed from the Sinaitic theocracy. Listen now, that the new covenant of which Jeremiah spoke and that of which our Savior brought to light by the shedding of his blood. So, dispensation grows out of dispensation, and the newest is but the fully expanded flower of the oldest. So, amazing. I mean, that's one paragraph for Voss. <laughs> you know, and that's, I mean, honestly, we could spend weeks just talking about that paragraph. It's so massive. Um, but to me, I just see beauty, you know, wonder, glory. Because what that shows me is, God, you know, what, I was thinking about this, I was studying biblical theology, and I thought, you know, why, why is it important to study biblical theology? Well, because it's important for your hermeneutics, your theology, your understanding of Scripture. And I thought, you know what, as we're able to, as we're able to peek into what God's purposes are, we're tapping into the mind of God. We're looking at the way that God did these things. And this is why I believe authors of Scripture, they recall and they, re- they, they, they remember and they recite what God had previously done in previous covenantal administrations, previous arrangements, right? We showed you that, right? In um, Acts chapter 7 with Stephen, I mean, he recalls the whole plan of redemption going all the way back to Abraham and his calling. And so does Paul. In Acts chapter 13, he does the same thing. And he shows how it all develops, right? From Abraham to Moses to the Davidic kingdom, all the way until we get to the, the Redeemer, the promised one. And uh, it, it's just fantastic. Now, uh, you know, I want to have time for all this. So let's hit the last... Let's hit the last part of, ex, of, uh, of Voss's definition when he speaks about God's uh, unfolding redemptive you know, uh, revelation, the progress of redemptive revelation. And he speaks of not just continuity, then he also speaks of multiformity. There are three things I want to hit. Covenants. 
theophanies and visions. Because these are the modes of revelation that God chose uh, to reveal his redemptive purposes in, in his people. So the idea of covenant becomes so instructive for what are the different elements of revelation? How is it that God revealed himself to his people? And we might say, well, God revealed himself through his word. It's inspired, Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scriptures inspired of God. Yes, but within the inspired scripture, we have God choosing various modes of revelation. Uh, it's that simple. Uh, one mode of revelation that's not on, the, not on here that we can add very simply, well, maybe I will add it. I don't know if I'll go into it. The angel of the Lord. God chose, uh, God chose to reveal Himself through an angelic emissary, who was who is ultimately understood to be what Christ is a pre-incarnate theophany of Christ. I believe very simply you can prove that from many places. Uh, He's called Lord in Genesis. uh, I think it's Genesis eighteen. Abraham calls him Lord. um, Also addressed in Lord, I think in Exodus chapter three at the burning bush where it says that God spoke uh, to Moses out of, uh, out of the bush, and then imperceptibly the text shifts to say that Moses was speaking to the angel standing in the midst of the bush, speaking with him. Wow, <laughs> right? Uh, how oftentimes do we associate the angel of the Lord with the burning bush? That wasn't in the Ten Commandments movie, <laughs> right? <laughs> but he was there. But let's talk about covenant for 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 um, uh, for just to begin, just to, for, for starters here. Uh, what is a covenant? Agreement. Covenant between is an agreement parties. between two parties. Legally binding. Legally binding. Anybody else? Yeah. yeah. I don't think any of those things are wrong. I mean, I, I've read probably oh I don't know how many books on uh, a definition of a covenant. An agreement, pact, contract, legally binding, a bond, all of that language is used. Um, o. Palmer Robertson, in his book, uh, The Christ of the Covenants, he defines it this way. He says <clears throat> that a covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. Um, and if you think about I want to emphasize just the idea, because we're talking about revelation, I just want to focus on the idea that God sovereignly administers his covenant relationship with man. Uh, He does not ask Abraham, do you want to come out of the Ur of Chaldeans? (laughs) He doesn't ask, you know, uh, the people of Israel, do you want to be delivered out of Exodus? He does that because of a former covenant ag- agreement, right? So all of these covenant administrations, uh, he doesn't ask Noah, would you like it not to rain anymore on the earth, right? So he sovereignly chooses uh, the, the, the people, the parties. He sovereignly administers this to his people. So a covenant is very important. You're going to see this throughout all of a biblical theology. You're just going to see how... 
extensive uh, the covenants are, and they all work together in some form or fashion. We don't have time to explain how they all work together, but I'm arguing that uh, whether you're talking about the covenant of uh, the covenant of uh, of the garden with 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 Adam, which I believe it is a covenant. I think it is. Uh, if you want to call it a covenant, fine. Many theologians, you know, they dig their heels in and they say, the word covenant is not there, you know. Um, okay, fine. You'll talk, maybe John Murray is a good person uh, to, to read on that. John Murray uh, referred to the arrangement uh, or the agreement that God had with Adam as an administration instead of a covenant. <laughs> I got news for Murray. The word administration is not there either. <laughs> so it just so it just makes sense that the Bible calls God the the covenant keeping God, the God that keeps covenant for a thousand generations. Right, that is the nature of who God is. He is a covenant maker and he is a covenant keeper. Right. Um, I believe personally that where the idea of covenant comes from is actually a covenant that does not exist between God and man. I think it comes from the covenant of redemption that is an intra-Trinitarian covenant, a pact within the Godhead itself, Father and Son and Spirit covenanting together in order to accomplish and in order to apply uh, redemption. So, uh, and I think that that intertrinitarian agreement is what gave uh, birth to uh, the covenant that God made. Listen to this now. The covenant, I believe, that God made in Genesis chapter 1 and in Genesis chapter 2 and then ultimately in Genesis chapter 3, right? We have a couple covenants there. He, we have the covenant, what some call the covenant of works, do this and live. Uh, do this and die, or the covenant of grace, which is a covenant that God makes with with his people to save them freely by his grace as they put their faith in the Redeemer, in the seed of the woman. Uh, but I think what is going on in Genesis chapter 1 is that God is making a covenant with his son, Adam. Now where does God get the idea of making a covenant with his son? But hold on a second. Let's establish the fact that Adam is the son of God. Is Adam the son of God? Yes. Where is that at in the Bible? Close. It's in, it, that's, a, that's a tough one, right? That's a tough one. It's in Luke. It's in Luke chapter 4 uh, where uh, Adam is called the Huyas Hatheos, the son of God, Right? So what God was doing, I believe, early on in the, in, the, in the covenant that he made with Adam is that he was reflecting the covenant of redemption that he made with his son. He was, he, he, because he has been in covenant with his son, he made another covenant to bring it into time and space to set, in other words, to set the prototype for the, the, the covenant that he, would, uh, that, that he would ultimately fulfill through Christ, who is the son of God, right? Uh, Adam being a type, Jesus being the reality, the antitype. You know, just, I mean, these are just some of the covenant dealings of God with man. Any questions about covenants, covenant dealings? Because they're everywhere. It's everywhere in the Bible. I would go so far as to say God doesn't work aside from covenants. God does not work apart from covenants. uh, Somewhere, I don't remember off the top of my head, but referring to... Um, the idea of 
in God being in covenant with Adam. Uh, one of the minor prophets, I believe, yeah. you know, quotes yeah. said, you know, says, "Like Adam, they transgressed the covenant." That's right. Was, yeah. Anybody know where that's at? I don't remember. Six, Hosea six seven. Hosea that's six. right. And uh, I was encouraged because Calvin, um, if you read Calvin's commentary on Hosea, he laughs at the idea that that was a co- that that Hosea is calling that a covenant. Um, he changes it though later in his Institutes. <laughs> so he's if if at least he's inconsistent. What encouraged me is like look. Even Calvin can learn. <laughs> you know, even Calvin can grow. <laughs> There's hope for all of us, right? Because in the Institutes, he refers to um, uh, he refers to Adam and Noah as both being in covenant with God. So somehow he, you know, I think he would rethink that one. Uh, but yeah, uh, Hosea chapter six verse seven says, "Like Adam." Israel, that's who he's referring to, they transgressed the covenant. So they became, they became covenant breakers just like Adam. So what happens is this, is that you go from Adam being the son of God and then entering into a, a covenant relationship with God, failing in that covenant, he, he fails in his probationary state in which he was in. And then what happens, I believe, is that when the covenant of, Ab- of, of, of uh, Sinai comes in, uh, I'm sk- I know I'm skipping over Abraham, but when the covenant with Moses comes in, Sinai, the covenant with Israel, what happens is that then there is a, there is a national layer that is added to uh, the covenant arrangement with the Son of God. Uh, so what happens is, is not only Jesus is fulfilling what happened with Adam, right, as the Son of God, right, but he also is fulfilling what happened with Israel as the Son of God. So that Israel is also identified as son. So this tribal people are then put into the formal theocracy, and in that way, they're put into a covenant with God, a covenant that, as we know now, they would break almost immediately. <laughs> right? They say, all the words of this covenant, we will do them, right, of the law, we will do them. And then just like a chapter later, they're already breaking the covenant. So what is that telling us? Adam, in this glorious arrangement with God, he, he breaks it. He, he eats right away. Israel, the glorious arrangement with God, they fail. Immediately start breaking the covenant. So what is needed is for a greater protological, right, um, paradigmatic son of God, uh, uh, one who will fulfill it all, right, um, uh, a preeminent son, uh, both that has effects for uh, Adam and, and that typology and Israel and that typology. And you see both of it in the Bible. Uh, Romans chapter 5, you see the Adamic parallel, right? And uh, in many, 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 many other places, you see the Israelic parallel between Christ and Israel. Something that comes to mind right away is Exodus chapter 4, verse 20, where it says... Um, 
you know, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 20, where God is speaking through Moses and he's saying, um, let my son go so that he may serve me. Wow. Well, guess what? Exodus chapter 4, verse 20 is picked up again by who? Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. In Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, he reminds Israel that he was their redeemer, says, out of Egypt, I called my son. But that's in a national sense. The nation that is in big trouble by the time Hosea is writing needs to be reminded that they were redeemed as a son out of Egypt. Well, guess what? Hosea chapter 11, verse 1 is mentioned again in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. This time, we see the fulfillment of God's covenant dealings, not with Adam, not with a nation, but with his real son. And he fulfills the requirements of the covenant perfectly. And he, 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 he grants us redemption. So now, any, other, any questions, anything else on covenants? Anything at all? It's pretty clear, right? Clear as mud. <laughs> Nothing. It's pretty amazing. One thing that I've noticed even just now but throughout is how the importance of federal headship. Yeah. Relies on on this, but it's so you can't have one without the other, and both are quite important in our theo- in our theology. Yeah, uh, and it it makes it so much more clear that we had, we needed that federal head, right? You know, that second Adam for us. Yeah, so that's an encouragement that I have. Amen. Yeah, that's right. That's that legal forensic force that you know um, that federalism presents. You know, that's right. Um, yeah, I mean, that's where the whole Adam Christ, right? There's only two kinds of persons in the world, two kinds of people. Right? You're either in Adam or you're in Christ, one or the other. Um, and that's because God works in this way, right? Uh, so next, uh, God also reveals himself through theophanies. That's interesting, right? The reason why this is important to point out is because early on in redemptive history, we see that God is uh, potentially, I'll use uh, Voss's language, he is potentially present in theonomy, or theonomy, in theophany (laughs) form, right? Theophany, theomony, theocracy. The theophany is important because what you see in the garden as God is walking with uh, man in the cool of the day, I think what's, what's being presented there is that God's ultimate revelation of himself comes through comes in what way through himself <laughs> right not with a mode not with a dream not with a vision not through an, not not through an oracle but actually by his immediate revelatory presence among his people now that level of theophany, God and man walking together in the cool of the day, can you imagine, is lost, right? Because of the fall. Now, what we get right after the fall is that we get God speaking, but God, for example, in Genesis 
uh, 6.13. Somebody want to read that for me? Genesis 6. I don't even know what it says anymore. I just have it here. Genesis 6.13. God speaks, but it's no longer in theophanic form. Yes, Robert. Then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. So, we go from walking with God in the cool of the day to then God speaking again there, but all we get is that God spoke, right? We don't have really a description of how he did it. We don't, we, we're not told. Did, did Noah hear an audible voice? Was he given a dream or a vision? We're just not told. Um, but then there's a progression in revelation through theonomy. <laughs> Theophany, excuse me. I got theonomy in the brain, which is not really a good... Anyway. <laughs> if you turn to Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, you have a parallel there to Genesis 3.13. In Genesis 12, 1... Um, the same thing happens again that happened with Noah. The Lord said to Abram, right? So it seems as if the mode of revelation is consistently limited in nature. But then, just jump down a few verses to verse uh, 7 to see all of a sudden there is a re-emergence of theophany. There we go. Theophany. Look at verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abram and said. So it's no longer simply the Lord said. Now we have a theophany that takes place. In some form, we don't know, we're not told, but he appears to Abraham now through a theophany. Voss points out that in the literal Hebrew, the literal Hebrew f- phrase is, the Hebrew is uh, saying this, it's in the passive. It says that God let himself be seen by Abraham, or by Abram at this point. Isn't that amazing? So God condescends to have another encounter with man so that as revelation is increasing, so is the redemptive presence of God. And, and so next, let's let's go next. The theophanies are also important for different reasons. Number one, we could say God's revelation is progressing. Okay, that's I think very basic. Number two, God discloses Himself personally to His people. I think what this does is it sets up the potential for a great disclosure of God. Right. And so work with me now. This is biblical theology. We go from a very Primitive, what uh, what Voss calls a germ, right? Let's just call this a germ, uh, right? Something happens, right? And then it moves forward in redemptive history to something else, and then it moves forward to something until you reach the ultimate reality, the ultimate fulfillment of the thing, whatever it is, whether you're talking about God's presence, whether you're talking about God's temple, whether you're talking about God's kingdom, whether you're talking about God's covenant, whatever it may be, what is going on? I think what's happening is that God's covenant presence is being, uh, it is progressive, progressively uh, increasing and intensifying. And what it is, is that it is preparing us for God to dwell <coughs> with man. 
But where do we see the greatest theophany of all? Christ. In Christ. Right? Uh, I can just think of one passage. Turn with me to John, please. Right. To John. John chapter 1. A much a much known passage, right? We know we know this. Verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He 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 What's the word there for dwelt? Tabernacled. Tabernacled. Right? So 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 we can even go from God appearing in very very primitive form to someone like Abraham to then 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 it then the presence of God takes a more formal uh, character in the tabernacle. Let's just put this for the tabernacle, okay? Where we have a formal understanding of the covenant presence with God with his people. Now, where, where now so where does the presence of God go from here? <laughs> it goes to Christ. Right? It goes to Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of God's tabernacling presence among his people. See, isn't this exciting? I, I think it's exciting. Keeps me up into the wee hours of the morning. You better be excited. <laughs> I'm working my tail off to get you excited about this. Um, <clears throat> so, but even then, even then as Christ comes in as the, you know, as the presence of God. Oh, look at this. Kind of like with Abraham, uh, verse 14 here. He dwelt among us and we saw his glory, right? We We, we, we could say he... He he let he lets himself be seen by us. First John chapter one verses one through four. Right, who the one that we have heard, the one that we have seen, the one that we have handled with our hands. Right, that, that that's the that 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 is important there for um, for this whole theology. But uh, turn with turn to me in Revelation chapter twenty one. Uh, so that I think we can go somewhere further. Not that there's anything greater than the presence of Jesus, but that the presence of Jesus has, at least in the Gospels, has come in, yes, but that doesn't mean that the, the, the incarnate, the advent of Christ was all that there will ever, ever be, right? So continuing on in our little chain here, we arrive at, uh, from Christ, we could say, to consummation. By the time we get to the new heavens and the new earth, after all the debates are over, <laughs> right? We get to the very tabernacling presence of God in consummate form. Look at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is uh, no longer any sea. He says, and I saw a holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as as a bride adorned for her husband, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eye, and there will be no longer any death, there will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Several things are going on there. But one thing that's going on is this. When we get to the consummation, notice that Revelation returns us back. Um, it, 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 it returns us back to the primitive tabernacle idea. 
And so we could even say that, that this is the way that it works. That uh, what we're seeing here is fulfillment that is organically connected to every stage of redemption. That's what biblical theology is all about. Understanding those connections. Right? And so what is God doing with appearing to Abraham? I think what God is doing is that he is preparing us that, that, that the ultimate goal of life is for man and God to dwell together in a holy communion bond. Right? And, and this is... Um, so it's God taking a people into a holy realm. It's the best way I've ever heard it said. And that's so true. Here's why. If you look at what happened, go back to Genesis chapter 12. If you see what happened in the, in the context of this theophany, something very, very, um, very primitive, very ancient, uh, very archaic, very, yeah, just very real primitive. Genesis 12, back at verse 7. Something happens here that's really, really fascinating. To me, it's fascinating. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. See how it reiterates the concept of appearing, presence. He built an altar to the Lord who, and this is the important part, revealed his presence to him, appeared to him, manifested his redemptive presence to him. And so what does he do? He sets up an altar. Why? The altar building in the, in the Bible is also to be traced along a biblical theological storyline. Because all the way back to this primitive account of Abram building an altar, you already have Abraham acknowledging that where the presence of God is, there is the temple of God. Where the presence of God is, there is the sanctuary of God. There is the house of God. What, one second. Real, real quick, can you hold that thought? Yeah. And the reason I say that is because now turn with me to Genesis 28, right? You know what's going on here. See how this is much more than just Sunday school stories about, you know, Abraham being a sojourner? I mean, this is what biblical theologians are are really uh, uh, blessing us with, this kind of stuff. Uh, You know this this account, Genesis chapter 28, beginning of verse 10. Jacob has a dream. Jacob's dream... Is given to him, and what he saw was he saw uh, he saw the antithesis of the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel is a ziggurat slash ladder structure. Ladder because you ascended up this, this ziggurat um, um, structure. It was like a pyramid, and at the top of that structure there was a platform. This is, this is pervasive in, in Near Eastern ancient history. And the platform of, of those structures were known as the doorway to heaven or the gate of heaven. 
Now read with me what happens. Look at verse 15. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land and I will not leave you until you have done what I have prom- what, until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. Man, God is in the house. Yeah. <laughs> right? And he says, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the Beit Elohim, the house of God. And this is what? The gate of heaven. See, the Tower of Babel was man's attempt to go through the gateway of heaven on their own. Autonomous, dead works, false autonomy, dead works in the attempt to ascend into the hill of the Lord. And what the latter, the latter vision that God gave uh, uh, Jacob was, it was a refutation of Babel, saying, uh-uh-uh, it's not you coming up. Watch, doesn't it say? Verse 12, he had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth. So from heaven it was set down upon the earth. It's not you going up, it's him coming down. That is the only way that you will go through the gateway of heaven. That's it. There's no other way. And what does what does um, what does uh, what does Jacob do? Two things. Verse seventeen. This is none other than the house of God. Verse eighteen. Then Jacob rose early in the morning and he took a stone that he had put under his head and he set it up as a pillar, and he poured oil on its top, and he called the name of the place Bethel, which means the house of the Lord. However, previously, the name of the city was Luz. Um, Simply amazing. Now we have the presence of a pillar. We've had the presence of an altar. Now we have the presence of anointing oil. Why is that? Let me stop there. Robert, you had a question. I don't want to disrespect you. Sorry. Because you had made a comment about the presence of God being in, in nearness with him. There you are. Uh, in the safety of everything, and I was thinking about Exodus 33 and the points that you're making right now on the Exodus and Moses asking God to be with them, and then he comes along and says, then Moses said, I pray you, you show me your glory, and he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious uh, to whom I will be gracious and show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock. Right. A cleft on the rock. Yeah. I think typologi- yeah. I think typological of being hidden in Christ. Yeah, yeah. yeah, in order to be able to bear the glory of God. Yeah, my question was, is can you make the same argument with that text? About what? What you were saying about, about God being with us and, well, definitely. And, yeah. Yeah, this, uh, uh, yeah, Moses wanted to have the deepest intimate communion with God, right? And what he was saying is that uh, Moses was not ready for that because he was not yet fully in consummate form with God. So he wasn't prepared for that. He would have, God would have, you know, um, 
uh, incinerated him, to put it lightly, <laughs> right? So he needed to be, he needed to go through the whole process of redemption. But let me just add one last thing as we run out of time here. Of course, as one theologian said, alas, the hourglass, she is the enemy. The presence of the altar, the pillar, the oil. What this is, I think, is that this is setting up the structure of the Bible in in such a way that it's preparing us for the priesthood of Christ. The priesthood of Christ does not follow the Levitical order. Right? What order does it follow? So already here in Genesis, right, we are told of a a pre-Levitical priestly a ceremony that is going on so that already the people of God understand there is a priesthood that predates. There are priestly offerings. There are priestly duties, priestly worship that happen pre-Levitical era, which is preparing us, I think, for the Melchizedekian priesthood of Christ that predates the Levitical era. And that's important. Why? Because if if Jesus would have been of the priesthood of Levi, then he would have been he, he, he would have had to um, uh, he would have had to been a mortal man. He would have been a weak man. He would have been chosen uh, from um, a certain uh, lineage. But Jesus has no father, so he couldn't qualify as a Levitical priest. Yes, sir. Okay, you said that Moses wasn't ready yet, but yet. <clears throat> What made Adam and Abram ready? What made because because they 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 sin, Adam sin, Abram sin. That's right. So I mean Moses yeah. he sinned it. So what made um, Moses? I mean what made Adam and Abram ready? I think uh, I think because Adam was in a state of innocence. At that time? Yes. He was in a state of innocence with the potential to be righteous. But he was not positively righteous yet. Uh, that's at least what theologians, you know. Who? Abel. Oh, Abram. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. And the way that that presence of God came to them was through theophanies. So that the, so that the, the actual unmitigated presence of God was veiled. Yeah. Yeah. So that would be the difference between their, um, their instances in Moses on Sinai where... What he requested was something is, more. He's saying, show me yourself. Without yeah. He wanted to see God's unmitigated, consummate glory. And God condescends to do that in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Right? So. Okay, we're dismissed. We're out of time. We're dismissed. Thank you, guys.